Well, if you look at the trends, 2028, 90 million people in the U.S. are going to be doing this. We're moving backwards to like, if you look at the employment statistics of 1908, 88% were self-employed back then. It's flipped now, but it's moving rapidly toward this sort of notion of back to the entrepreneur, right? Welcome to Opolis Public Radio, where we dig into how a rapidly changing world is impacting our lives and what we can do about it, with a focus on freelancing, finances, and the future of work. On this episode of Opolis Public Radio, we dig into the challenges around creating technology that will support decentralized organizations, the legal framework of the employment commons, how to form an LLC, what exactly structural benevolence is and why it's important, and collective capitalism. So welcome to episode four of Opolis Public Radio. Today I'm joined by Jason Weiner and Yev Muchnick of the Opolis Legal Steering Committee. Jason is the principal of a boutique law firm in Boulder, Colorado, uh, called Jason Weiner PC and co-founder of the Colorado Cooperative uh, Developers. He specializes in cooperative law, shared ownership models, and cooperative finance. Welcome, Jason. Thanks very much for having me. Yev is a long supporter of Opolis and is the man- managing partner of a boutique law firm called Launch Legal in Denver, um, the corporate counsel to one of Wyoming's first SPDI applicants, and also acts as advisor of Colorado-based legal tech, company, co- tech companies and a number of industry-diverse blockchain companies. She serves on a number of Colorado government blockchain advisory steering committees in agriculture and banking, the board of Global Women in Blockchain, the Women Who Startup Foundation, Women in Voice Tech, and the LexLead Group. Welcome, Yev. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So we're here to talk about all of the legal challenges, conundrums, issues, complexities of trying to figure out how to essentially reorganize commerce, employment specifically in the way that we operate it today. Um, So to start with, we have uh, this notion of a decentralized autonomous organization. So this is a big discussion point in the Web3 space. Do one of you want to define that for us? I've I've got it actually written out here if you just want me to read it from our white paper, but... um, do you want to want to give it a stab in like layperson terms? Jason, do you want to give it a go? I can just read <laughs> it. It's, I mean, if you want. So a decentralized autonomous organization or called DAO or sometimes labeled as a decentralized autonomous corporation, DAC, is an organization represented by rules encoded as a computer program that is transparent, controlled by shareholders and not influenced by a central government. The DAO's financial transaction record and program rules are maintained on a blockchain. The precise legal status of this type of business organization is unclear. All right, so this is where things get kind of tricky, right? When it talk when we talk about like having DAOs or decentralized organizations actually have recognition in, in like the the call it the analog world or the real world, right? So the legal status of DAOs. Let's talk about that. Tell me why the, the, this, this problem exists and, and so what, that, I mean, what are, go ahead, Yev. Yeah, so I mean, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. So one of the, the main issues with, that has been cited for DAOs is the, the lack of a recognized legal status and, you know, the lack of kind of this, this wrapper, legal wrapper to an organization of, of individuals or companies 
and then the ensuing uh, kind of liabilities that that result from the actions of this group and you know by kind of a failure of having this formal legal status you default under uh, traditional legal principles you default to general partnership status and one of the main issues with general partnership status is the fact that there's unlimited liability there are a host of fiduciary landmines um, for the, the the consortium that's that's part of this group um, so not really having kind of a formal legal status to it and then also not availing yourself to the legal protections that that come with for example an llc or a corporation or a cooperative has been a big issue for you know the decentralized world and you know failing to kind of have those protections and desperately seeking them while trying to organize and and have decentralized governance um has, has been spoken about for the last couple of years and, and trying to find a solution for that. Absolutely. So the notion of um, sort of legitimizing decentralized organizations is really the topic at hand. And, you know, cooperative law seems to be a big part of that. Uh, Jason, tell us a little bit about your work on, in cooperative law and then how you see um, the sort of application or the use case here at the commons, the employment commons being important to this sort of merging of two worlds. Yeah. It's interesting that in, uh, kind of, you know, the kind of Web 3.0 and the DAO movement, we're hearkening back to concepts and frameworks that have been around for, in some cases, hundreds of years. Uh, I like to call the cooperative the, the original social enterprise business structure. You know, we have this advent in the last 10 years of the public benefit corporation, which is a corporate entity to uh, expand the scope of consideration for corporate directors and work penetrate the um, the rigidity of the corporate fiduciary duty to yeah, maximize the, shareholder the shareholder value yeah shareholder primacy problem and that that problem arose as an economic construct by Milton Friedman in the seventies and we've been uh, kind of seeing the the faults and the damage done by that that orthodoxy through both uh, corporate uh, kind of ec- the externalization of, of corporate conduct, um, fraud, and even um, and even uh, uh, corporate jurisprudence. The law uh, has up- upheld that convention. It took some energy from social entrepreneurs to develop this alternative, the public benefit corporation, but it all really steers around the central problem of, of shareholder agency and, and solving for shareholders being the underlying owners of a corporation within the legally protected status of limited director liability. And that's really what Yev was pointing to. That's what the corporate veil or the corporate shell is really all about is limited liability and perpetual duration. A general partnership doesn't have either of those things. It lives only as long as the general partners and uh, the, and the general partners are liable jointly and severally for the acts of one another. And so we overcame that problem with the corporation, but it's, it's interesting to me that the alternative in creating kind of a virtuous cycle of value creation and and value um, and beneficial uh, and the di- and the distribution of benefits back to the creators of value has been around for hundreds of years. 
Uh, we've had corporate statutes in the U.S. Uh, going back to the 30s. They predate the LLC statutes. They predate, um, in some cases, uh, even corporate statutes. Uh, the model corporations laws were really kind of developed in the 60s and 70s. Um, and we've seen really proliferation of cooperative formations and conversions in the last 10 years, I think as a response to uh, the attempt to kind of put band-aids on the symptoms of corporate capitalism and consolidation of corporate power. And uh, we're starting to see a move away from wholesale, you know, corporate agency to a tradition that shares in governance, economic benefit, and participation within a stakeholders instead of just shareholders, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the whole notion is we're moving away from just that highly centralized point of power, which is shareholders represented by board directors and having that be like the exclusive focal point of all decisions, right? I mean, that's really the, that's, that's the, that's the crux of the problem. Yeah. And that relationship is really just focused in on the narrowest view of me as a shareholder, which is I contribute capital. And my only expectation is you're going to grow the value of that capital. That's exactly Whereas right. the cooperative, as you say, it, it treats you as a wholer person or entity. You know, you're here for financial participation, not extraction. You're also here to gain access and to, va- and to benefit from a collective. And the cooperative laws around the country um, to the surprise of many, incorporate social and environmental values into the laws themselves. And so in a lot of ways, these laws, these, these entities exist for social purpose, for environmental purpose, far earlier than the public benefit corporation or any other corporate structure for that matter. And right. the check on the agency problem is, lo and behold, democracy. The idea that the stakeholders to Imagine a entity will hold their representatives accountable in a democratic uh, practice and, and governance system. And it works quite well. And we have multi-billion dollar cooperatives operating at scale around the world, all the way down to you know, three, four, five person collectives that operate with very little formality. So it's a really rich tradition. It's a really interesting and dynamic space to be in. Yeah, 100%. I 100% agree with it. What's interesting is the Web3 social kind of goals, right? If you if you really look at Web3 and what Web3 tech is trying to accomplish, it's kind of gone the the kind of um, the extreme other direction, right? Where it's like, well, we're going to just solve all these social problems through through code. Like we're going to make sure that um, you know, everything's immutable, governance is done transparently on chain, like all these different things, but but this just doesn't really work very well in the current legal landscape, right? Like if you're going to have essentially an entity that just doesn't exist, but it does, and it's creating value. I mean, the, the key number one thing that I've seen, or at least that at least my, my take is that the powers that be care about in the, in the world of economic transfer, it's really about paying tax. So if, if you're looking at transactions or commerce or payroll or employment or any of these things, the governments want to know that they're getting their taxes paid. That's really what a lot of this is about. I mean, if you look at the regulatory pronouncements around cryptocurrencies and things, a lot of a lot of questions around, well, how do we track it? How do we trace it? How do we get paid? You know, all, that's like the major narrative, right? It's it's money laundering and all this other stuff. Some of it I think is a little bit of a rare herring because I think there's some underlying worries about dethroning the US dollar and things like that, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, but it seems like there's, so this cooperative law concept, as you said, is, is 
is is rich in tradition. It's not anything new. The concept of a guild is not anything new, a cooperative collective. None of this is new. We've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, what does Web3 bring to the table that we haven't been able to do thus far? What are the symptomatic problems or the execution problems that maybe Web3 brings to the table for this in your mind? And yeah, feel free to jump in on this. This is conversational. Like This isn't like mm-hmm. panel Q&A. Like, just jump in if you got something if you want to contribute. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'll just jump in quickly and just, you know, my perception of Web3 not being, you know, from, from the legal perspective and not being a technologist, sure. but, you know, just the, the, the peer-to-peer networks, the decentralization of of power you know essentially and it, the the machine learning the ai that underpins web3 right and it's being able to accommodate that from a system where there is this centralized entity like you know the google search engine for example moving towards these distributed networks and being able to uh, to approach that you know in a, a sound way from from a legal perspective and that includes you know data privacy that includes uh contractual relationships etc so um yeah <laughs> I, I mean again those foundational principles um need to need to be supported by these traditional legal norms until obviously you know we kind of chip away at some of the traditional legal norms to accommodate for, for the technology as well and, and have them grow together. Um, yeah. And I think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to offer an idea here and, 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 you know, we've been doing unions for a long time too, right? So unions are not new, but when you look at unions today and what they look like, there's a lot of controversy about whether even unions are even worth, worth anything anymore, like, or, or if they've outlived their usefulness. And I think a lot of that criticism comes from um, uh, corruption or perceived corruption in, in sort of the union formation and the union governance, right? So you get these highly centralized powers that come to be in a lot of circumstances. A lot of these, a lot of most unions I'm aware of are geographical, right? So like you'll have not all of them, but like, or they'll be split up into like districts of, of unions, right? Or like locations, like, uh, I don't know exactly what they call them, but, um, and then there's like the question of membership, right? Like sometimes it's forced membership. It's not really optional if you want to practice the trade, right? So like, um, it seems to me, at least this is what I'll offer that Web3 technology really helps solve some of the governance issues and, transparency issues that I think are the main criticism points of unions. I mean, do you think that I'm on the right track with that? Do you think that the legal framework by itself is great, but then like adding these features of transparency and, and governance are, you know, in a, in a fair distributed way or are going to be really the thing that, that maybe bring unions back to more prominence. What do you think? Uh, I'm going to push back gently on that one. Um, as, as a former uh, labor lawyer, um, I think you know technology, like it does in the racial justice movement, first exposes us to what's been happening at kind of the individual level, community level. Um, it reveals, uh, you know, it reveals information at the same time as it reveals asymmetry in information, and it reveals asymmetry in power. And the power can't then readily be redistributed without intervention. And so, you know, the union is really about 
leveling up the lowest element of power in you know the labor force which is to provide collective bargaining over essential terms and conditions of employment where at an otherwise atomized level employees don't have the information or power to bargain um, for the same outcome that they would if banded together and i think technology like social media is, is revealing there's no you know outcome you can't expect a different outcome by just simply changing the medium we have social media that's exposed just simply how erosive a platform can be to independent journalism, to content creation, to arts and culture, uh, without there being a kind of collective counterforce to uh, where the power currently resides. So I think when it comes to legal structures, again, the cooperative can help. It's not enough, but it can help to provide a process, a due process, and a, 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 a system of fairness, but how fairness is achieved is ultimately going to be about power and power balancing. And I think that needs to reflect the aggregation of people who create value. And the guild is a great format. I mean, it's first about kind of setting quality standards and setting professional standards, but it can go further to level a playing field and level a market. And it can do that in a variety of ways that you just can't do through either government intervention or governance itself. Uh, Germany is a great uh, kind of counter uh, example to what we have in the US. They adopted in their collective bargaining framework a system of co-determination. They have labor unions, but they added on a system that requires unions and the voice of, of labor to have a seat at the corporate board. We don't have that in this country. We have no. an economic system of collective bargaining, but there's no governance layer. And there are other places where there's a governance layer and far less collective bargaining. Um, and some have advocated for something akin to that here. And I think that comes from more of a kind of market-based libertarian approach. But I think the combination of both is really what's necessary and powerful to ensure that there's accountability, checks and balances, and a counterforce to power consolidating in the hands of, of you know, corporate directors and executives and uh whoever might whoever might want to grab the power right i mean that's or it defaults i think there's a strong argument that power defaults uh to a catch basin of 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 white men in america at least and uh that takes you know an active counterforce to redistribute yeah it seems like you know um when you when you talk about having a non-hierarchical system, unless you have a way to manage governance and decision-making in a non-hierarchical system, it defaults, right, to the power vacuum, which is whoever the loudest barker is or whatever, right, or whoever happens to have the biggest ego and the biggest hands and the biggest truck <laughs> to run off with things. So, um, yeah, I agree. It's, what's interesting about this is when we started the the legal research on this probably two years ago, longer actually, um, it, it was um, – so I coined a term. I call it the tragedy of the boardroom, which actually describes this singularity of sort of decision-making uh, for, for, um, for board directors as it relates to shareholder value. And um, one, of the, one of the simplest descriptions of this – um, it's the erosion of benevolence. Um, most startups are super like kumbaya, drink the Kool-Aid. Oh, 
you know, if you look back at Uber's early marketing, you know, we're freeing the taxi drab, cab drivers, we're going to pay them more and you're going to pay less for a ride and here, take a hit, right? I mean, it, it was literally that like simplistic. Um, and then you fast forward and what happened is over, there's a, there's a time and, and size relationship to benevolence and it actually, it, it widens, right? So it's very close in the very beginning. And, you know, because, you know, you're young, you're a young company, you're very excited, you have these, you know, benevolent and altruistic ideas, and then you're going to go change the world for the better. But then the reality of, of you know, capital interests and investors and what they have fiduciary duty to do and drive returns and, and how they exit and all of these things contribute to decision making that ultimately creates a wide gap between value and um stakeholders, right? Because it's really only about shareholders. To give you an example, um, Andreessen Horowitz invested $10 million, if I recall, or if, if just off the top of my head, um, in Lyft. Okay. And Lyft is the, the better of the two, of course, to them, right? They're, they're, they're the nice guys compared to the, the jerks that are over at Uber, right? But when you look at the exits, right, they got $1.3 billion on the public exit from that. And the average Lyft driver doesn't make minimum wage. Okay. Now I'm not a rocket scientist. This is literally on the back of my napkin after six drinks. Like I don't need to be clear headed to see that this is pretty like, wait a minute, your entire market, your entire value drivers, your metrics are all about drivers, rides and revenue that are all on the backs of people who don't even work for you. Like it's this amorphous sort of Dow-esque type of thing. And all the value is concentrated in one area. And it's just like, that's just crazy. Now, the way I always describe this is it's just a byproduct of the game that we're playing, right? When you look at game design and economic incentives and all of this and legal frameworks, input output, right? So like, because we have the, the fiduciary duty laws and because we have the, all of these things and most people organize as a C corp in games like this, this is going to be what you get, right? It's, it's, it's fundamental to the outcomes of how the game design was set up. Right? So What's interesting about Web3, and this is one of the things I've been critical of, is we got all this benevolent tech, right? So we got all this blockchain tech, decentralized data storage and identity and metadata and DeFi and banking and all this stuff that's popping up, thousands and thousands of startups. Most of them, if they're taking on capital investment or C-Corps, okay? I've seen at least in the past year, Handful, at least a handful of really quality startups that I'm aware of take outside VC money and completely productize and abandon almost their entire narrative around um, open source and, and accessibility and democratization and all of this. Like they're almost not talking about it at all. Do you guys, do you guys share with me in that feeling that like, it's sort of an irony that we're talking about this, like, this new internet, this benevolence, this, you know, this uh, technological benevolence, but then we're building it on top of frameworks that are highly centralized and have these built in, you know, Achilles heels. They're flawed. Like it, it literally is, is, it's not just ironic. It's almost like, how, how does anybody calculate that that will ever work? Yeah. I mean, that, so that goes back to, you know, th this whole, sh like the, explosion of the sharing economy right that you just touched upon with uber and airbnb and it was 
quickly kind of grew into something that wasn't user centric, right? It wasn't tailored for the end user. So now this, I guess, I mean, Jason, you know more about this than, than I'm, <laughs> than I, I'm trying to catch up to your knowledge. Um, but obviously, you know, platform co-op, co-ops and the, the theory of platform cooperativism where it's driving kind of social, political, economic um, philosophies, I guess, into a movement into the next economy. And that I think is very much aligned with the web, the pace of web 3.0. So, why, so why did, out of curiosity, I, I totally agree. Why do you think then that instead of like adopting more, like people doing more cooperative law and PBCs with like protection mechanisms for governance and decision-making and power distribution. Why do we see a whole bunch of foundations and not-for-profits and stuff popping up? Why do we see this? I don't understand. Yeah, but I mean, traditionally, just the cooperatives as a, as a legal construct didn't allow for, for the investor member, right? And just kind of with the, the flexibility of the ULCAA and... Oh, in the mic off to Jason, but you know, it yeah, does so allow Colorado is obviously a little different. I think, you know, for a couple of specific reasons and Jason, you, I mean, you were involved in writing this. So like, why don't you, why don't you fill in the color on that? that yeah, no, no, didn't, I didn't, I didn't write it, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think what we're, what we're dancing around is what we're seeing is the designed outcome of venture finance and corporate finance. We shouldn't be surprised at the no. productization, commoditization of software and tools and social media and all the rest. That's the structures enable those outcomes more often than not. And that's precisely why totally. we're seeing it so much. And so should we be surprised at all that like an idealistic open source play raises some money and now all of a sudden it's, you know, closing the gate and looking at proprietary licensing and you know, data analytics. No, that's exactly how you build enterprise value to scale and sell. And that's all in service of finance. And so what we're seeing is, you know, the natural extension, the natural endpoint of not even just late stage capitalism, but really this is the financialization of business. And business, as we know, has not always been about that. The cooperative, on the other hand, keeps at bay the tendencies and urges of finance by making us more making us have a real and uh and and kind of uh dynamic and deep conversation about value and the uniform limited cooperative association act that's a mouthful it's a uniform statute that uh was drafted in 2008 and 9 um by the mentor of my mentor um, I'm the beneficiary of that work. My partner, Linda, uh, was on the committee that drafted uh, Colorado's version of ULCA. But ULCA was, dra was drafted and then it was adopted by the Uniform Law Commission, which is a commission of academics and attorneys around the country that, that review and sign off on model statutes. So, you know, Model Limited Liability Company Act, Model Corporate right. Statute. And ULCA was uh, um, kind of elevated to that uh, to that you know, Academy in 2008 or nine, it was adopted here in Colorado, and I think in 2010. And what it changed was the, the, pro, the prohibition, most co-op statutes around the country fall into one of two types. They're either cooperative corporation laws where they look like corporate statutes, but they provide for cooperative guardrails and principles, or 
their associations. REI is a cooperative association, and it looks and feels like a membership organization, but again, with cooperative guardrails and principles. And Alka took a middle road and it said, you can essentially form and run this thing like a limited liability company. You can kind of self-govern almost in any way you want, except for the most essential, crucial, defining characteristics of the cooperative. There's certain immutable characteristics that if you were to violate, make you something else. But if you want to call yourself a co-op or a limited co-op association, there's certain things you can't cannot do, but just about everything else you can agree to do in your articles and bylaws as you see fit. And it's very much along the lines of an LLC statute, but what it did that no other co-op statute before it uh, had done was to allow for investor members to have limited voting rights. Every other co-op statute said, sure, you can raise outside money, but you can't get voting rights and their returns are statutorily limited. And in the co-op, in, in, the, in the ULCA statute, those two things were expanded, but with controls. So investors can have voting rights, they can have seats on a board, and they can have uh, more expansive, but still predetermined or predefined financial returns. And it makes it a more financeable structure. It's not, it's not infinitely financeable. Um, it's still not susceptible to financialization, so it's not a great engine for venture capital activity uh, or for founders looking for venture capital. But it's more—it's it, you know—it's more in the middle than a traditional. It's more co-op. calibrated than a traditional co-op would be. So it's so, the, the the genius is usually in the middle somewhere, and and it seems yeah. like that's what the the Oka statutes are trying to do is really modernize the cooperative framework such that you can actually use it as an engine for economics, but not, you know, give up the spirit of the cooperative and protections. This, as I call it, the structural benevolence of the thing, right? Yep. So so let's talk about the Opolis uh, framework. So we've got the, the employment commons itself. We've got the Opolis trustee. Uh, we've got these different components that sort of play into this. Uh, we've got different stakeholders as well. Yeah, do you want to walk us through a little bit about the the high level of the structure and and kind of um, maybe highlight why a member would need an LLC to be a part of this and how that relates to all of the the overall structure? So, kind of going back to um, in the analog world, as you as you called it, John, kind of the traditional structure of a inside the uh, matrix. Right. Inside the matrix of, of, of a PEO. Um, and typically with, with a PEO, you have a principle called co-employment um, where employers are basically able to lease their employees to another entity and gain access to um, a human resource stack, right? Benefits, payroll, et cetera. And so it makes it just kind of that, that, larger pool of employees, particularly under the ACA, um, gives you access to better pricing for, for, for healthcare, for example. So Opolis sort of turned that on its head in this Web 3.0 world and created a decentralized employment organization. And in that model, we're using a cooperative uh, structure under, the, under ULCA. So the Employment Commons is a cooperative entity um, and basically freelancers or gig workers can join the, the, the cooperative entity as a member. 
and they have this, they're kind of part of this, this public good infrastructure, right? This network where they can gain access to decentralized benefits. Um, the employment commons then outsources a lot of these services through the Opolis trustee, which is uh, kind of a, an administrative outsourced model, but again, kind of within the fabric of a decentralized network. Um, so, and then under <laughs> under the employment commons, we've created it such that there are districts or, or classes where gig workers, freelancers, companies can come together based on various socioeconomic principles and form their own districts or, or series. So for example, if Jason and I were coming together as a group of, of, of law firms, we have common or mutual interests in the way that we access some of these benefits and we can sort of democratically drive the um, access to, to these benefits. So tell me a little bit about the, the um, LLC. Why do we need an LLC and what's the S Corp status and what, why does it explain that a little bit? So that's, I mean, that's more from a, um, from, from an access point and just kind of going back to unfortunately kind of the traditional model of accessing um, what's compliance for compliance purposes. Yeah. So, okay, let me make sure I got this right. So you guys can check me if I got this wrong. I know neither of you are officially like just labor and employment attorneys officially, but like, you know, enough about this to, uh, to make sure I got it right. So essentially um, for accessing group healthcare benefits and things like that, there's a certain compliance standards that need to be met with respect to the co-employment standard. And, and that relates to the legal structure and the employment dynamic of the corporation who's the member of the commons and the employee who happens to be employed by that particular legal entity. So if I'm an LLC and elect S Corp status for tax filing purposes, I'm actually allowed to employ myself, even owners, right? You can employ yourself as an owner and, and that then creates the official legal framework that allows for that co-employment relationship between uh, this particular entity who has one employee and the employment commons, right? So that's where we check the boxes, so to speak, in the current legal landscape to make sure that we're doing things by the book, correct? Correct. I get yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I've, 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 I've been sleeping in this for a while, so I, I think I got it. But um, there's one point I wanted to highlight uh, from Yev's summary, um, which was simple and clear, by the way, and it made it uh, – easy for me to follow as, as I've been kind of coming up to speed on all this. Um, we talked earlier about, you know, the place of the labor union and you have know, talked about how members can organize into groups. We're calling them series here. And what that does is it accomplishes a kind of quasi collective bargaining unit. It's like a and, guild. It's like a guild almost inside the commons. Yeah, and but it plays on one of the kind of powerful characteristics of the cooperative, which is to leverage collective purchasing or leverage collective need to achieve scale. And the cooperative has been doing this for uh, consumers and for businesses, again, for a long, long time. And it's what allows independent businesses to really compete with consolidated corporate entities. So you think Ace Hardware, all of the national... Uh, locations, Ace Hardware stores are independently owned. Some are co-branded as Ace Hardware, but they're not franchisees. They're independently owned businesses that are wholesale. They're members of a purchasing co-op. 
Ace Hardware is a national supplying co-op that provides branded um, wholesale products to the locations. And each store, if you were to liken it to this guild, a grouping of businesses that allows them to purchase product at the same rate that that Home Depot is able to purchase wholesale product or something close. And so the guild is a form of market-based collective bargaining. And it can be a really powerful driver for benefits uh, in an era when more than 50% of the workforce in America um, are non-employee contractors or freelancers. Well, if you look at the trends, 2028, 90 million people in the U.S. are going to be doing this. Yep. We're moving backwards to like, if you look at the employment statistics of 1908, 88% were self-employed back then. It's flipped now, but it's moving rapidly toward this sort of notion of back to the entrepreneur, right? And it's it's not so much like, you know, the 1990s version of an entrepreneur where I got to go and raise, you know, save money and eat ramen and, and do all this. It's It's more this fluid work world where it's just like, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm really in business for myself, but just not by myself, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, assign my time and attention to 10 different places and then maybe I'll consolidate it for a while to one or two or one or maybe take some time off. But then it's this notion of sort of sovereign employment that we talk about, this, this, uh, uh, this pilgrimage back to self-sovereign employment in, in a highly tech, you know, technological information age type of way, right? Like it's, it's not the, you know, the sort of tradesman kind of way of the early 1900s. It's, it's this new version of it. But we should heed history. We have to remember what workers experienced in that sovereign work world where we constructed, we had a concept, a construct that the relationship was of two freely trading entities. I trade you my labor, you pay me money. And with no regulatory protection, we have to remember meatpacking plants and share crop farmers oh, and yeah. domestic workers. These were horrid work conditions. And it took- well, what, the, the mortality rate in, in the iron and steel mills was like 10% annually. So I mean, you, you had a way, higher chance of dying in a steel mill than you did like getting cancer. And the union was the only thing that protected the interest because you didn't have the Fair Labor Standards Act. You didn't have OSHA until the 30s. And so we have to remember if we're, hark- if we're moving back in that direction, now enabled with technology, in some ways the risk is morphed and changed, but it's no less potent but still, and scary. It, it's st- Yeah, it's still there. But I think that's one of the interesting things that we've been tinkering on with Opolis for the past several years is how do we avoid the sort of power concentration tyranny in any context? How do we... Um, maintain mutuality in this, you know, this duality of relationships, service consumer and service provider. Cause that's really, we're not, uh, I, I kind of would prefer to kind of do away with the paternalistic terms of employee and employer, because I just think it's, it, it doesn't really accurately describe the the new social construct of employment and where we're moving. Um, but I a hundred percent agree with you. If we don't learn from history, we're going to just repeat it. I mean, that's classic that I, I didn't make that up. That's, who even said that? He who forgets history is doomed to repeat it. Was that Churchill or Roosevelt or somebody? I don't remember. But um, but it's true, though, right? So we have to make sure that that there's – well, number one, I think it's interesting because you know, a lot of people are really quick to demonize capitalism and, corporati- you know, and, 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 and corp- corporations, right? But it's, 
It's the bastardization of capitalism through corporatism and centralized control and other sort of highly extractive primary shareholder, exclusive shareholder rights kind of thing. Surveillance capitalism. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's exploitive. Capitalism has become exploitive and it's not, it, there's no reciprocity. Forget mutuality. I mean, reciprocity is really sort of absent from this sort of economics equation. So the thing that I think is most, in my mind, the thing that's most interesting about Opolis is we literally have an opportunity to almost redraft the way stakeholders relate to each other in a highly capitalistic sense, right? So scaling value, sharing value, and operating from an abundance perspective and not just a lack perspective where it's like, well, we only have so much, right? But like, I've always said like, well, what if we scaled the Opolis Commons to a, a billion people and the and we designed the economics model to mirror that of something that would look like a public company, but we're using economic frameworks to like actually drive value and distribute value to membership and investors in a more, much more calibrated way. I mean, it just seems like, it seems like a lot of the, 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 the demonization of this or that is like missing the beauty of taking a little bit from here and a little bit from here and take a little union, a little co-op and a little guild and a little web three and, you know, mix it all up. And then here we go. We've got this, like this, this new thing that we could might even call community capitalism. Right. So what do you guys think about that? What do you think about this idea of, of basically not demonizing value creation, but actually figuring out through even an example like the employment commons, what do you think the, the, the hopes are for Opolis to be able to execute that? I mean, coming from the perspective of somebody who's been on the, uh, on the back end of how we have been structuring all of this, the baseline has always been alignment and, and it'll always be alignment. And as long as that's the baseline, I think it's going, going to succeed, right? The digital commons, the employment commons, this, this general network of commons now with the basis of, of alignment, it's got to succeed, right? It's got to meet the needs of both parties in a very sustainable long-term way. What do you think, Jason? We, we, we feel this, this kind of need to be deferential toward capitalism. And I think what you're doing, maybe without wanting to acknowledge it or say it, is using the instruments of capitalism to build a social fabric, a social economy, which, dare I say, is kind of at, at its root socialistic, if not... And that's uh, interesting. It's, like community, it's like community capitalism is sort of like... We're just dancing around what this is. We're just redistributing power from the top to the people who create it and can therefore benefit from it. So creating mutuality, these are all real concepts and characteristics of a socialized economy that has values and principles and is based on relationships and regeneration instead of extraction. Um, Well, I I think it's clearly in the private sector, though, where I think a lot of people get where they trip on socialism is the idea that it's 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 really a governmental enterprise where it's like, sure, you know, it's like, well, we're going to make all these things bad and all of these things good. And it's sort of in and of itself, highly controlled and centralized. And history doesn't have a good flashlight to shine on a lot of instances of experiments in that case. Right. So. What I think is, um, yeah, you're right. It's a social fabric, but it allows for, you know, in a, in a way there's a libertarian stint to this too, right? Because it's, it's, it's open markets 
um, decentralized governance, transparency, cooperativism, but let's scale the heck out of value, right? Let's align the incentives of, of the whole with the individual. And I think that's the thing that if you were to boil it down to one principle that I, in my study of game theory and, and um, design of, of legal frameworks, that's the one thing that seems to be missing because my individual needs are often very, very different than what the kind of group says is what's best for the group, right? So if we're actually able to, at scale, in a quasi-public utility framework for employment and employment cooperative, design a system that scales value based on membership and payroll that's processed, and that value is shared throughout the ecosystem to all stakeholders, that's a pretty beautiful thing. Like, I mean, if that's actually something that we can, that we do, I mean, that's what we've been preparing to do. I mean, that's been the entire conversation for years and years and years on this is like, that's why we didn't rush to launch a token. That's why we didn't, you know, go out and create some BS utility or whatever. Like we wanted to really take the time to do it right. And to understand, you know, not just like the idealism of it, but like how to functionally and legally do it in a way that's sustainable, not just legally sustainable, but benevolently sustainable, but then also not, you know, cut your nose off to spite your face, right? Because I see a lot of well-intended projects go down the road of, like I mentioned earlier, the non-for-profit or whatever. And it's like, there's no incentives, right? To, to scale value in those situations where it's like, it, it feels great, but they feel like that's their only alternative to, you know, maintaining that benevolence, right? But it's just not true because I think the, I think these the sort of emerging or re-emerging, I guess, these re-emerging concepts where it's sort of a, it's like a designer model, right? Because we're like pulling from all different pools of like concepts and structures to build something that's com- it's new. It's completely new in a lot of ways, but it's actually completely old in, in basically every component except for probably some of the Web3 tech that enables some of these concepts. That's, that's why I'm excited about it. Cause like, I, you know, it, it, to me, it's like venturing into, well, quite frankly, I think solving, I mean, if this can get solved for this particular use case, why not create this as a template for solving other, you know, types of industries that could be highly cooperative, like insurance companies or whatever. I mean, banking, finance, like getting to places where we don't just have, DeFi operating in sort of the cloud ethersphere, but like DeFi actually comes to a co-op near you, like a credit union type of situation, but purely for DeFi, right? Could be a beautiful thing, in my opinion. Already a beautiful thing. We've we've come this far. It's already a beautiful thing. It is. It is. All right. Um, Challenges. What are the hiccups that we're going to run into? Complexity, I think, creates um, hesitation yeah. to adoption. And I've it's seen... It's an education that, problem, it seems like, because the complexity leads to then I don't understand, which leads to well, how do you educate? Well, it's a problem at its core yeah. because yeah. The, the, the structure itself is part of the product. You know, you're competing in a saturated environment of information environment and... Uh, it can be hard, like you can't even get to the education stage if you can't even get people's awareness and interest. So it becomes a product thing. The product has to be valuable enough and attractive and appealing enough for people to overcome the initial hurdle to acculturate. 
And uh, that's a product issue. That's not actually an education issue. The education is, we, I, I described co-ops as the apple of business models. It should be self-explanatory. It revolves a lot of unlearning. So once you're there, it's rather natural and intuitive. Yeah, yeah. But to get to the Agreed. point where you're th- open enough to learn it is hard. So I think it's a product design question and it's a value prop question. You have to be appealing enough for people to want in to, le- to do the learning. Well, and ironically, with COVID-19, you know, in the U.S., we've got 30 million people that have been in and out of unemployment in some form or fashion in the past three and a half months. I mean, I think this is a pretty good time where people are wanting to learn about like, you know, they've, you know, between this and 2008, they've kind of had it when it yeah. comes to like, you know, the, 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 yeah, the disposal. You know, yeah. Well, it's the, the proof of the broken social contract, right? Like back in the 60s, oh, you know, come here, pension, retirement, trust, loyalty, all this stuff. Like, yeah, you know, hachu. Oh, everyone's off. We got to like, you know, we got to call it all off. Everyone's got to go home. I mean, well, I'm being a little... That in the generational dimension, I think you're yeah. absolutely right. Like, this is riding the wave we know is here and, and ripples behind it coming. Um, well, so yeah, the, the, gen, the Zoomers, the Zoomers, that's the Zers, they're not even... I mean, they're already over 50% doing freelance full-time. So, yeah. like, they look at their parents, whatever generation they are, Xers or Boomers, and they're saying... Uh, no thanks to that misery. Like they watched Office Space one too many times. You know, I did 15 minutes of actual work today, just enough not to get fired. Like that can't be, I mean, it's a caricature, but it's it's kind of true. I mean, if you look at the statistics and how people are so disengaged from their work today, I mean, there's there's a disconnect between that human creativity and fulfillment of that laborious exercise and and the reality of like the means to an end culture that we've built, right? Like huge disconnect between that. I think this is, you know, is, is, is difficult as this time is, you know, with all difficult times come, you know, opportunities for growth and, and understanding and learning and development and advancements. And I think this is a big opportunity for all of us. I think um, it'll be interesting to see how it comes down. Well, thank you to the both of you. And we're going to open it up to questions to see if anybody has any really quickly. Um, so if you have a question, feel free to dump it in the Q&A section. If not, I'll put on the hold music right now. Just kidding. I don't have any. Um, while we're w- waiting to see if anybody has any questions initially, um, is there anything else that you either of you wanted to say or contribute? This is something that hasn't been done before right and you know for lack of a better word and i know this has been overused a lot but just really disrupting this industry and so you know come on board ask questions reach out to me to i'm sure jason is open to to answering questions about the legal structure as well and you know join because it's this is really truly a beautiful thing and uh i am a huge fan of 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 platform cooperativism. And I think that, you know, this, the way that Opolis has done it, the way the employment commons is, has adapted it is, is something that's going to stay for a while. So take benefit from it. I I couldn't agree more. So I, you know, just to um, kind of dogpile on that point, you know, the way to see self-sovereign employment become a reality is to join the movement. And the cool thing about this is it's not just like, you know, 
this is something that everyone's already doing. If you're a freelancer or a gig worker or an entrepreneur or independent contractor, you're already probably doing all, if not, you should be doing all of these things. You know, I mean, you're out looking for healthcare and you're doing insurances and you're having your accounting and payroll done and all of these things like come join the commons because really at the end of the day, the way we see it is the economic engine or the commercial experience of a person really begins at the protocol layer of commercial activity, which is payroll, it's employment. And having that layer be completely owned and, and the, all of the power in the individual, but through a community and through a network, to me is really setting the table for pretty much everything else to be recalibrated for mutuality and reciprocity in commercial experiences. So getting this right is really the, the core fundamental component of this commercial social change that we're all talking about. And it's really, really important that to support it, that you come and join. So please do um, get in contact with us. If you're listening, if you're watching, uh, we you can go to our website and even uh, set up an appointment to talk with me directly. So we're, we're going to be out on the front lines. If there's anything that you need, we're there. So first off, before I close, I just, I don't, we don't have any questions come in from the groups. So I guess we did everything flawlessly. Uh, thank you to those in attendance watching here live. Um, first and foremost, my, my thanks to Yev and to Jason. I'll thank you individually and collectively. So Yev, thank you for your tireless, literally tireless support of Opolis over the last couple of years. I mean, you and I have, have I, I know firsthand how many uh, very, very late nights that you've put into, you know, trying to dot I's and cross T's like literally on agreements and reviews and your support of the effort has been invaluable to everything. So um, if you're local to Denver and you're looking for a startup advisor, if you're looking for somebody who uh, is, is a class act, talk to Yeb. She's wonderful. And then, you know, Jason, just, you know, your expertise in cooperative law, I mean, blows my mind. Like I have been around um, attorneys and legal professionals for a very, very long time. I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years. I have never met anybody who has such a comprehensive understanding of not only the legal aspects, but the social and design aspects of this. So to have both of you on our advisory steering committee for legal frameworks is just, it's just a, a very big blessing to the effort. And I'm personally grateful, but I know that the, the effort itself, Opolis is grateful as well. So thank you for that. So everybody, thank you for joining us on this episode of Opolis Public Radio. Remember to subscribe to Opolis YouTube channel for more videos just like this. Uh, you, can su you can also subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, you prefer audio version. And uh, remember if you're a freelancer, gig worker, entrepreneur, independent contractor, looking for an employment solution to make your life a little bit easier, visit opolis.co, that's O-P-O-L-I-S dot C-O. And we'll see you around the ethersphere. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked the episode. If you did, please leave us a rating or review and don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.